Amen. And now, please remain standing as we turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll continue our series through this book and the very practical exhortations he gives to us by turning to Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 4. This is found on page 1197. We'll be reading verses 4 through 6. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that has been won for us in Jesus, and we know that when we are saved by you, it is a life-altering event that affects absolutely every sphere of who we are. And so, Lord, we want to have teachable hearts as we come to this text, being willing to make big changes when your word calls us to. Because we know, Lord, that holiness really is the highest form of happiness, and we want to be happy in you. So give us that humble heart. Help us to be willing to cast away sin, to lay hold on that which is truly life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, I am jealous for your hearts, because I know that all kinds of misery come from bad desire, from not loving the right things in the right order, from having disordered desires, loving one thing way too much, and then loving another thing way too little. Take a dad who loves his work way more than he loves his family, and so he takes on way more responsibility than he needs to do, he's hardly ever home, only to realize too late that because he valued his family too little, now they are lost to him. He doesn't know them, and they resent him. Now, just think about that for a second. Was it wrong for him to love his work? It's not wrong to love what you do. It's not wrong to love your work. The problem was that he valued it too much and that he loved his family too little. You see, he had disordered loves. And those disordered loves led him to sacrifice the wrong things. And this idea of disordered loves, I think it's a very helpful idea, and I got it from Augustine, the great early church father. He said in one of his writings, living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective an impartial evaluation of things. In other words, to see things as they are. And then he goes on, he says, to love things, that is to say, to love things in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, 
or to have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more. You get what he's saying? He's saying the best way to live is to love the right things in the right order. So we should love things as they actually are worthy of being loved. And of course, God is the most worthy of being loved. And I think this is so important because this is the key for true growth in holiness. If you have that genuine love for Jesus, everything else is going to fall into place. People will then want to give their lives in service. They will not value their comfort or whatever over Jesus. They'll be like, I love Jesus, and that makes me want to serve. Because I love Jesus, I want to pray. I want to know Scripture. And they'll do those things for the right reasons, for the love of Jesus, because they really want to know him, and they want him to be known. It all came from that first love being right, Jesus They loved Jesus, so all those things fell into place. In contrast, if you lack love for Jesus, then everything's going to go wrong, and there will be no quick fix. You can't can't skirt this. Well, I do love this thing more, but I'll still behave as if I'm a good person. You can't do that. You have to love Jesus to truly love everything else correctly. Now, as we're thinking about this, okay, yes, loving Jesus more than anything else, right, right? There are two great obstacles in, in, in our lives in this world, two things that very, very often stand in the way of loving Jesus, two things that people way, often, way too often love too much, and those two things are money and relationships with the opposite sex. And as the author of Hebrews is developing practical implications like, okay, what does it mean to live in light of what Jesus has done for us? These are the exact things He now sets his gaze upon here. So we're going to look at disordered loves first. First, the disordered love for what I will call, given the variety of ages present, relations. That act that is meant for husband and wife alone. We'll look at that first. Disordered love for that in verse 4. And then we'll look at a disordered love for money in verses 5 through 6. And then we'll talk about how Jesus restores the right order to our loves through his saving grace. So first, talking about relations. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor. What does it mean to honor marriage? Well, positively, it means honoring that special act between husband and wife. That special act of relations, that is something good that God made. He invented it. It's his good gift. And the reason why he invented it, as Song of Solomon tells us, is one reason, is to deepen intimacy between husband and wife. It's to act like glue between two people who have made those vows, committing themselves for the rest of their lives to love each other. So, relations is like marriage glue. My two youngest and I, we've been working recently on a model airplane. It involves a lot of powerful glue. Powerful glue holding pieces together, good thing. Powerful glue on your hands or in your eye, really bad thing, right? 
You want the glue in the right place. Same thing here. The opposite of honoring marriage is taking the marriage glue and using it outside of marriage. It is, verses four, verse 4 says, to engage in immorality or adultery. That's marriage glue outside of marriage. Now, those two words, immorality and adultery, they're talking about two slightly different things. Adultery is when there's at least one married person involved. Adultery is, you know, when there's one married person involved, immorality is capturing everything else, including relations between two unmarried people. And what God is wanting us to see is when you do this thing outside of the context where God made it, what it shows is that you don't actually have a really high view of marriage. You're not holding it in honor. So think about Christmas. We just, just celebrated Christmas, and lots of, lots of families have special traditions where they save, you know, special food for, like, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, right? And, oh, you're smelling it cooking. You're like, oh, this is going to be so good. But you wait. Why? Because you're saving that special treat for the special day as a way of honoring, saying this day is special. Okay. In the same way. God made relations to be something special, something that we save for our spouse. And we honor marriage and we honor our future relationship with them when we save that special piece for our wedding day after we've made the solemn vows to each other, even if we've never met our future spouse yet. You young people may not have even met your future spouse. You save yourself for that person. And you show, this is how high I think marriage is. I'm saving this special gift for that. And when we don't do this, what are we doing? We're taking this special gift, this, this wonderful gift of marriage glue, right? Of something that's made to join two people's hearts together in love. And we're, we're basically, we're, we're defiling it is the word here, smearing mud over it. We're making, taking something God made to be beautiful in its place and we're taking it out of its place. And we're not honoring it the way God made it to work. As we're thinking about this, this is definitely a place where our culture has completely, completely lost its way, right? They think that we're the weird ones for abstaining until marriage. They think we have a low view of relations. They say, if you love it, why are you abstaining from it? Why are you trying to kill people's enjoyment? What's our response? We love this gift the way God made it to be. And we know that if you ignore the Creator's plan, you're setting yourself up for misery. Again, marriage glue in marriage, good. Marriage glue outside of marriage, bad. Especially when people separate after that special intimate time. It's like when two pieces of paper are glued together and you try to separate, but you can't without tearing part of yourself away. Now, one of the world's biggest lies is that people who wait are the unhappy ones. And those who don't wait are the happiest. False. Again, the indulgent are the most miserable, and they have the lowest form, they have the lowest experience of satisfaction. Why? They're reaping all this hardship because they're taking something that was made to be a vehicle of love, giving of oneself in love and blessing the other person, and they're making it to be all about them and about their satisfaction 
They're taking something that was made to exalt this beautiful gift of two committed people publicly. That's what marriage is. And they're not exalting marriage at all. They're saying marriage isn't that special at all. Now, that's what he's talking about in verse 4. He says, look, God will judge the immoral and adulterous. It's not just future judgment final last day judgment, but even in this life, we experience the misery of what happens when we take marriage glue and take it outside of marriage. In contrast, those who keep themselves for their spouse, and by the way, what does that mean? It means not just in your body, but also your imagination and your thoughts and where your eyes go. This passage also says, in contrast, those who who honor marriage are the most blessed because they are honoring God with this gift the way it was made to be honored. And so they're honoring God. They're happy in their holiness. And this is a radical thought, especially as you think of people who are single, maybe even some people who are single for their entire lives. The world will look at them and say, you have totally missed out. The Bible looks at them and says, you have greatly honored God and you have rightly ordered love because what you're doing is showing that Jesus is worth it. And to have him is to have everything, and to not have him is to miss everything. Do you believe that holiness is the highest form of happiness? I think this is one place where we really get tested on it. Do you really believe it? Do you believe that abstinence in this area, if that's what God's will is for you, is in fact the greatest form of joy? That's what this is saying. And it's, it's because of Jesus, how great he is. So let marriage be held in honor. Here are some ways we need to honor marriage. First, singles, keep yourself. Keep yourself for your future spouse. Resolve now. And you have to resolve. It has to be a resolve that this is a gift you're going to keep for that special person when you've made your vows. Don't let curiosity about this wonderful gift lead you to open the present before its proper time. It's worth saving. And don't pretend that this is no one's business. The whole church has a vested interest in the consistency of our witness. This is under massive attack in our world. We need to be unified in love. We need to realize this is everyone's business in the sense that I need to involve my friends in the fight. I need people who are going to hold me accountable to this good resolve. Married people, invest in your marriage. Don't give up when it, gets hard, when it gets hard. Keep moving towards each other. And that means not just acting responsibly. Oh, no, we've got a problem, got to fix it. But it's also working proactively, saying marriage is worth keeping. It's worth honoring. I'm going to work on my marriage. I'm going to invest in my marriage and do things that actively deepen my love. Third, don't let past failures lead you into deeper sin. So let's say as you're hearing this, you're like, wow, I have not kept this. I have not honored marriage in this way. What's done is done. And it's tempting to say, well, I've blown it. So no use trying to keep pure now. No. Remember the gospel. Remember the grace that is yours. Remember how Jesus takes our defilement and he makes it white as snow. Whatever our past, he wants our hearts now. So even if we have greatly dishonored marriage and greatly dishonored Jesus in the past, Today, and from every day forward, he wants you now to honor marriage. 
Fourth, don't let the world's idolizing of this gift win out in your heart. The world says, if you're not satisfied in this area, your life is a total loss. False. That is a classic example of a distorted love. A person could deny themselves in this area their whole lives and yet still be deeply happy and content. Why? Because their loves are rightly ordered. Jesus is so much worth it, way more than this. That's how great and glorious Jesus is. So we need a rightly ordered love for relations. We also need a rightly ordered love of money. That's the next one. Verse 5, keep your life free from money and, don't, and be content with what you have. And this is really important that we understand exactly what he's saying here. It's not money that is the root of all evils. Uh, a lot of times you hear that misquoted. That is not what it says. That's why I reread 1 Timothy 6 to you. 1 Timothy 6.10, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evils. Again, distorted love, loving money, way too much. So just like with relations, there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. It's when our lives are disordered and we love money way too much, that's when sin enters in. So here's a thought experiment for you. Let's pretend that you are suddenly handed $100 million. No joke, this astonishing sum is suddenly yours. What would be your response? Just think about that. I'll tell you how the world would respond. All you have to do is watch the game shows and like the videos of the people who like win the lottery. What are they doing? They're jumping up and down, they're going crazy, throwing their hat in the air, you know, just, just going bananas, right? On the contrary, what would, a, what would a Christian whose heart is not filled with the love of money, how would they respond to $100 million? Well, I think it'd probably be something like this. It'd be the sober recognition of, whoa, I have just been handed a massive responsibility from the Lord. Like, I'm going to have to really be careful that my heart doesn't get wrapped around this. I need, I'm going to have to answer to the Lord Jesus on the last day for every cent of that 100 million. I need to be a good steward of this. This is a huge responsibility. It'd be like if somebody hands you 10 babies to take care of, or the office of the President of the United States of America, or the responsibility of shepherding 500 souls as a church leader. All of those things, great privileges, yes, but also huge responsibilities. And yet, when our lives are set with love for Christ, we see those, those responsibilities as opportunities, as a way of honoring Him, our great love, with this lesser good. So do you get the idea? This is what money was made for. It was made for, a, for honoring Jesus the King. It was made for, not for going mad about it, throwing your hat into the air for it. This is what one person writes. Money is for food and clothes and comfort and a visit to the pictures. This is an older quote. You know, going to the movies. Money is to make happy the lives of children. I like that. Money is for buying the fruits of the earth, of the land where you were born. Do you get the idea? Money is not something, it's not an end in of itself. It's not something to set your hearts on. Oh, I wish I had tons of money. No, it's a tool for honoring Jesus. It's a tool for the real purpose in life, which is what? 
What's the great end for which we were created? Love. Love of God. Love of neighbor. We're not supposed to love money. We're supposed to love God and love our neighbor. So what happens when our loves are rightly ordered towards money? What happens when we see money as one tool among many for that great love of God and of other people? Well, it tells us right here. Verse 5, we will be content with what we have. And this is a radical thought. And I, I, I wonder how many of us have actually wrapped our minds around what this means. Being content with what you have, you know what that means? It means not wanting to get rich. Not wanting to get rich. Did you hear what 1 Timothy 6 said about those who want to get rich? They pierce themselves with many pangs. Now, if the opportunity comes to better ourselves, will we take that? Well, sure. Do we want to get jobs that will provide wealth for our families? Of course. But part of what it means not to love money is that we're not letting money drive the ship. So no, we're not going to get that job that pays way more just because it pays more. We're thinking about which job is going to enable me to use my gifts to the max for the glory of Jesus, regardless of whether this one makes way tons more than the other, as long as we're caring for our families, right? So do you get the idea? Do you want to become rich? Ask yourselves that. Do you want to become rich? I submit that if you do, you have a disordered love towards money. Hebrews 13.5, keep yourself from the love of money. Proverbs 30, verse 8, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Okay, we get poverty. Nor riches? Why does he say that? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? You should not want to get rich. Second point, when we don't love money, we are now free to use it well for the kingdom. When we don't love it, we're free to spend it for the sake of love of God and love of neighbor. It becomes our joy because we love Jesus so much. It becomes our joy to give generously for the work of the kingdom. This is what we've been learning about in Sunday school the past two weeks. We know that God is with us, so he takes away all that anxiety Oh no, what will happen if I start giving generously and regularly? What will happen to me? Well, verse 5, God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your first love and he will be with you. He will be sufficient. I think, you know, a lot of times when we think about money and how we, how we can sometimes express that we love it too much is when we use money to, to cope, to buy coping things. I got to have this coffee or this treat or this vacation or this TV, and we think to ourselves, I can't possibly be happy and content or deal with this issue that's going on today without this. And so love of money becomes an avenue for turning from God, who is our refuge, and not loving him preeminently. But look at what this says. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to spend money to cope. He will be your refuge. He's our first love. So we've talked about a rightly ordered love towards relations, rightly ordered love towards money. And I just want you to realize, this is just so important, that the Bible's answer to our idolatry towards both of these things is not to say, bad, money, bad, relations, bad. That's not what the Bible's saying. No, I hope you've heard how God is affirming the goodness of these things and the positive commands that he's made in this passage. Relations are not evil. The idolatry of it is. 
And so he says, honor marriage. There's that positive command. Or money. Money itself is not evil. The idolatry of money is. The love of money is. So what does he say? Be content with what you have. He's calling us to a rightly ordered love of these things. Honoring them as the good but lesser things that they are. So let's just say we're looking at these things, both of them maybe, or maybe one of them in particular. You're asking yourself in your heart, do I have a disordered love for either of these things? And you realize, yes, honestly, I do. I have been making a huge idol out of both of these or one of these. What should you do? Well, remember this great quote from the Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers. We need the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive, expelling, expulsive power of a new affection or new love. What's he talking about? This is so core. This is so core for how the human heart works. It's not enough to say, love money and relations less. Like, ah, hard to do. No, we need to also say, and this is the key, love Jesus more. And when that new affection for Christ and the great sense of how awesome and how worthy he is floods our hearts, it will expel the old idolatrous love. Until then, we will just continue in this cycle of frustration, of never feeling like we can ever break out of our idolatry of these things. Take a look at Esau back in Hebrews 12, 16, the author says, Don't be like the sexually immoral man, Esau, who traded his birthright, which, remember, was the entire kingdom of God. He traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. So Esau is like the classic picture of massively disordered love, (laughs) massively disordered affections. He loved food and relations way more than he loved God and his kingdom. And so, given the choice, it's no wonder that he chose food and women over God. In the same way, you will continue to choose whatever your pet idol is over God, and you'll be very frustrated by feelings of powerlessness until you discover anew the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. So where do you get this great love for Jesus? The good news of the gospel is Jesus gives it to you. Jesus has come to rightly order our loves. Our hearts are a mess. The good news is Jesus has come to straighten them out, to give us that genuine desire for him and for his glory above any other thing. How does he give us this great love? How does he give it to us? By showing us his own love, by reminding us of what he's done for us, his willingness to die for disordered sinners. His willingness to be that Savior who will never, as this passage says, who will never leave us or forsake us, even when we have massively failed over and over again in our idolatry of either money or the opposite sex or whatever it is. And so if you want to grow in your love for Jesus, you've got to focus on him. You've got to look at him. You've got to meet him where he says he'll be met. And that means coming right here. To the Lord's day, hearing the word, receiving the sacraments, stirring up your love for him in prayer 
and in your own seeking him every single day in the word of God. All these places where he's promised to meet you, guess what will happen when you start focusing on him? You'll start to see his glory opening up like the heavens open, and you see Jesus on the throne, all majestic, all glorious, loving and praying for you all the time and just saying, wow, this is the one who's not going to leave me, forsake me. This is the one who will truly satisfy and not leave me abandoned. The last verse of our text, verse 6, is from Psalm 118. We confess this already. It's really cool. This is the one place in the book of Hebrews where the people speak back to God. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We now sing praise in response back to him. This is a, these are words of those who have rediscovered the ultimate worthiness of God to be loved above every other thing. This is what we sing. The Lord is my helper. He does not leave us to our guilt about relations and money, about how we've chased, us, chased after those things. He doesn't leave us in that pit. No, it says the Lord is my helper. He will always satisfy He will never disappoint. Even when we have lost the possibility of marriage or we've lost all our money, those are things that people can take away. But they cannot take the Lord. And that's where he lands. This is where it all comes back to. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, what can man take away from me when I have him? There is no one like God. There is no one like our Savior. So let's give him all of our love. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have massively disordered loves. And we're constantly taking good created things and then elevating them to the ultimate place where all of our happiness and all of our hope is fastened on this created thing. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from this, from this delusion, from this idolatry. Oh, Lord. Help us to truly love you above all things and to know that these other good gifts are good gifts, but they fall far short of you and they're only worth loving insofar as they draw us closer to you. And so we pray, help us to use these wonderful, very powerful forces in our lives, both our attitude towards the opposite sex and also our attitude towards money. Help us to use these things for you, to render these up on the altar to say, Lord, these are your things, and we want to spend them well for you. Lord, give us a rightly ordered heart, and we pray that you would help us never to forget you, our first love, our preeminent love, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.